Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here in the house of the Lord. Amen. You can stand with us. We're going to sing together. I'm just going to pray really quickly. God, we just welcome you in our midst this morning. We've come to lift you high, Lord. So I just ask that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we are just taking a moment, a pause. To just be present with you. To acknowledge your presence. Help us, God, as we sing these songs, that our hearts would be responding to the words that we're singing, the truth that we're declaring. God, help us to receive from you what you have for us. Maybe through the songs, through the word, through prayer, in worship, we trust and we come expectantly by faith with open hands, Lord, to receive from you and to offer ourselves to you. Amen. Let's sing together this morning.
call to worship from Psalm 147, verses 12 through 20. We've actually been reading this psalm. I don't know if you've noticed this. A few weeks in a row, I broke it up into like three readings so that we could just continue to meditate on the words of the Lord. It says, extol the Lord, Jerusalem, that's the city of God. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his commands to hit the earth. His word, sorry, runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Amen. It says that no other nation knew, but now we do. That's praiseworthy. Amen. All right, let's praise him this morning. Is it a hurt, a pain, 
unforgiveness, a sin. It could be any number of things. Ask the Lord to show you. And as we sing these words, let's just open our hands and our hearts to God and ask him to help us to surrender because all means all. It means everything. Let's think about what that really means for us today as we sing. Let's sing that again. Jesus, I surrender all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. And I surrender
little bit more free. This next song I'm going to sing, I just, some of you might not know it. It's a really old, old, old hymn from the 1800s. And some of you will know it, some of you won't. If you don't know it, just meditate on these words. These are really good words for Lent as we move towards Good Friday and the cross. Thinking about what the authors of Hebrew describes in Jesus as our great high priest. And we're going to sing about that. The chorus is really easy, so feel free to jump in if you want there. But if you don't know the words, that's okay. Just let God speak to you and you can worship him in your heart as you respond to this truth. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and breathes for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written.
perfect, spotless righteousness, great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One in Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior. chapter 12 right before Jesus goes in and receives the triumphal entry it says that Mary the sister of Lazarus came in with a jar of precious oil expensive oil and she put it on his feet which is not normal even in Jewish culture you put oil on the head when you put oil on someone's feet it's because they are dead that's how you anoint a dead body Mary came in, and I don't know if she knew or if it was the Holy Spirit or if it was an accident, but she anointed his feet, and John says that she was preparing him for burial, that her heart in reflection of Jesus, who just raised her brother Lazarus from the dead and declared to her sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And her response was pure worship and love, and that is our should be our response this morning too. If you're not there, don't feel ashamed. Just ask God to help you, to open your eyes, to see the glory of what he's done, to help you get past your struggles that are help, that are just being an obstacle for you. We have obstacles. But if you can, if you feel prompted to respond to the truths that we just sang about, let's sing this together and let's mean it. Let's pour our love on him. And I will warn you, this word, this song says we're going to pour oil. like It's like oil upon your feet, like wine for you to drink. And after I sang it in rehearsal, I realized that's a little ironic to sing in a Nazarene church. But it's okay, you guys, okay? Not to burst your bubble, but Jesus drank wine. Okay, he made it and he drank it. But we don't have to drink it. It's just a metaphor. It's just a metaphor that we're giving him an offering, something precious, something valuable, something that is saved for special occasions. 
We're celebrating and we're loving him this morning. Amen. I don't know how to say exactly how I feel and I can't begin to tell you what your love has meant. I'm lost for words. Is there a way to show the passion in my heart? Truly great, I think you are my dearest friend. Lord, this is my desire to pour my love on you.
can be seated. This is week five of the season of Lent. Next Sunday is the sixth and final week. It's Palm Sunday. It's going to be a great service. Come ready to receive. It's going to be a blessing, I believe, for you. And then the following week is Easter. I was talking with my kids this morning in the car, and I, we were just talking about the importance of, you know, I, I feel like we've lost some of the emphasis of inviting people to join us for Easter. Um, I think a lot of the reason for that is that we've been hesitant to pack our buildings on Easter Sunday because of COVID over the past few years. But I, I do hope that it's not lost on us, that there may be people with whom we interact every day that would benefit, because who wouldn't, from being invited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I just want to throw that out there to encourage you to be thinking, to be mindful, to be open to those opportunities to maybe just extend an invitation to a neighbor or a coworker or a friend to come and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Let's not lose the, the gift of inviting others just because uh, maybe we've not emphasized that so much over the past few years. So I hope that you will think about that. But this is week five of the season of Lent. We've kind of been all over the place scripture-wise as we've gone through the season of Lent. We've been in the Old Testament. We've been in John the past few weeks. We, we, were in, uh, we were, looked at Romans, I think it was at one point, from Paul's epistles. Um, and today we're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. And I say that kind of trembling because the book of Ezekiel is a big one. And theologically, there's a lot going on there. And there's so much that I would love to be able to tell you uh, that we don't have time to talk about today as we prepare for our reading from Ezekiel 37. But I do feel like I need to give you just a quick insert eye roll here, a quick overview, not going back to the very beginning, but at least helping you understand where we're at as we pick up in our passage. I need to give you just a brief uh, brush up on some Old Testament history so that you can appreciate what's going on here, okay? So just really quickly, I'm not the best at doing that quickly and effectively, but we're going to do it anyways. Let's start with, with King David. Let's pick up there. Like I said, we're not going to go back to the very beginning, but let's pick up with King David's reign, right? King David was not the first king, but he was a what many consider to be a successful king. As he reigned over the kingdom, the nation of Israel, he is overall successful. Was he perfect? No. <laughs> Did David do some disturbing things that we still aren't sure how to feel about? 100%, okay? He doesn't have to be your favorite person in scripture, but he was a successful king in the eyes of, of the Jewish nation. They would say that, and as we read and appreciate that, we, we can acknowledge that David's uh, reign was largely successful. And as, as his son Solomon stepped in as king, things started off well. He's picking up, you know, a successful leadership from his father, and things start off on a good foot, but they quickly change. Things quickly go downhill. Things quickly take a bad turn, and eventually Solomon, long story short, abandons the will and ways of God, and he does things that are not good in the eyes of God, and because of his actions, things start to spiral out of control for the nation of Israel, to put it simply, okay? And so at one point, that, that all kind of comes to a head at one point when the kingdom, when the nation of Israel splits into two. 
You're likely familiar with this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's just a quick refresher. But the kingdom, the nation of Israel splits into two. You have the northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel, and you have the southern kingdom, which is now called the kingdom of Judah. And so these two kingdoms are at odds with one another. They can't agree. And what do people do? When the, what do the people of God do when they can't agree? They split because that, that's what we do, right? We just split. We go do our own thing, and that makes everything better. And so that's what happens. They split. And, and, and as they split, as they're going about their way, they continue to live in a way that, is not, uh, that does not follow the will and ways of God just like their leaders have. And so the nations are crumbling. They are, they are abandoning the ways of God. They are looking less and less like the God they claim to follow. And God continues. We've talked about this so much that God continues over and over again to send warnings. He speaks through prophets. He does mighty works to tell them, if you don't change, something bad is going to happen. If you don't turn back and repent and listen to me and follow me, you're going to see destruction. You're going to fall. You're trying to do things your own way, and it's not going to work for you. I know how this story ends, and it's not good. Please relent and turn back to me, but we know that they don't. The people of God don't listen. The warnings are ignored time and time again. They continue to live in sin, and we see all of this kind of really fall apart. It seems like things hadn't if things hadn't completely fallen apart, they have now because as you read through the book of Kings in 2 Kings 17, you read that the fall of the northern kingdom happens. The fall of the northern kingdom, Assyria comes in and they take the Israelites and they are now exiles in Assyria. They take them away from their homeland and they're now exiled in Assyria. And then not long after in 2 Kings 24 and 25, the same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. This time at the hands of Babylon, they are taken out as exiles. They are taken from their home, from their land, and they are taken into Babylon. And that's important because Ezekiel begins, the book of Ezekiel begins about five years after those first exiles are taken from Babylon. And Ezekiel is a 30-year-old priest among those exiles who was always seeking God, right? Not maybe a perfect person, but always seeking God, who was just, oh, go read about Ezekiel. He is just an amazing example of what it looks like to be faithful to God in the midst of turmoil and in the midst of everything falling apart. And Ezekiel is, is with all of these other exiles, and, and the book begins with him just sitting on the side of a river, and he's, I just, I picture him in despair, <laughs> because what else do you do when you're in the fifth year of, of being a, an exile in an unknown foreign land, and you just want to be back home where everything makes sense? And he's sitting there, and, and the book opens with Ezekiel. <laughs> the book of Ezekiel is full of strange visions, you know this, Right? And, and it kicks off with this vision that he has. And scholars note that, that one of the most perplexing things for Ezekiel with this vision would have been that here he sits and he's seeing the vision of the glory of God before him. But this likely would have been confusing for him because remember, he's in Babylon, right? He's in Babylon. And, and it would have been normal to see the glory of God on Sinai, it would have been normal to see the glory of God over the ark in the temple, 
But the glory of God is, is here in Babylon? This would have been so confusing for someone like Ezekiel. And it's startling because you don't expect the glory of God to show up in Babylon, right? This is where we are separated from God, it would seem. And yet here is God appearing to Ezekiel through uh, various visions. And so the book goes on. And as I was refreshing myself this week through the book of Ezekiel, I couldn't help but note like in chapter 33 where it just feels like this is where things feel just like knife to the heart. In chapter 33, we read about this story. It's the 12th year of exile. And you read about this story of this messenger who comes from Jerusalem. And while that might feel like, oh, something good's about to happen, it's the complete opposite because this messenger comes from Jerusalem to let Ezekiel and others know The temple has officially fallen. Destruction has officially come. Jerusalem is done. The temple is gone. And I just imagine for a moment, because our identity is not found in a temple, so to speak. But for the Jewish people, this would have been their identity. Everything they were, everything they knew God to be is now completely Utter and complete despair is what I imagine. And so Ezekiel is is going along his way, and God continues to show up. And God continues to give a word to Ezekiel. And things start to look up around chapter 36 when God starts saying some peculiar things like, Ezekiel, I'm not finished with Israel. I, I could be. And I should be, he doesn't say that, that's my own interpretation, he could and he should, but he's not. And he starts to give Ezekiel these glimpses of hope. If I were Ezekiel, I would feel so afraid to, to grasp onto those because it would be like, could it be? Could, would you actually do that? And God, it begins to give him these visions of things that he's going to do, ways that he's going to continue to make himself known to the people of Israel. He says peculiar things in chapter 36, like I'm going to replace their heart of stone, which has basically been the reason that they're in this place to begin with, and I'm gonna give them a new heart. I'm gonna put my spirit in them. I'm gonna give them a new spirit. And that leads up to today's passage, the very next chapter, Ezekiel 37. You probably need a break at this point to stand up and to like get moving and think about what we're about to unpack together. So if you would stand with me, if you're able, we're gonna pick up the story here in Ezekiel 37, starting with verse one. If you have to, I suggest closing your eyes if you have to do that to imagine this bizarre scene. Even, I know this is probably not your first time reading this story, but take it in, because there's a lot to take in with this story. It's, it's incredible. It's very hard to imagine, but it's incredible. So this is through the word, the word of the Lord through Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, 
dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and they stood up on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. How comforting it would have been to hear this little, uh, just this added gift of I will settle you in your own land. Because when you've been exiled for years, in not only a foreign land, but in Babylon, you need to understand that that little verse in itself would have brought immense comfort to the people of Israel. That was free. It wasn't planned. It wasn't in my notes, but it was just a little reminder for you. It goes well with everything else, though. Here's the thing about this story. It's so intimidating to preach for a lot of reasons, which I've shared with a few people already, and it's really difficult as, as you are encouraged to do as a preacher to place yourself within the story and to just imagine, to ask questions, to notice things. That's really in some ways easy to do because I feel like this is an easy to picture scenario, but I think it's really hard to imagine what it would have been like for someone like Ezekiel. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine putting myself in Ezekiel's shoes who again, we cannot say this enough that we will never understand what it's like to be exiles in a foreign land, to be removed, forcibly removed from your home, from your temple, your beloved city, to see it destroyed, to know that, that if you ever do get the chance to go back home, you won't have the familiar home to come back to, that it's gone. And now here you are in this, in this foreign land, 
that, that is not even going to pretend to try to acknowledge your God, the one who you kind of lost sight of? And I would imagine that for exiles, especially for those of the faithful, like Ezekiel, who, who was a priest and was faithful to God, I would imagine that there would be moments where it would be incredibly easy to sit in despair and to feel like all of your hope is gone. All of your dreams are dead. Your identity is gone. To be filled with fear. These are all things that that would easily be felt by Israel and by Ezekiel. And so it's fitting then that the way that God would describe the spiritual state of Israel would be to describe this valley of dry, dusty bones. Notice how, how we read that it was very dry. That little phrase is is very helpful for us as as that communicates these bones are dead, like long dead. I mean, they're bones, so it's already implied, but it's dry. These, These, the lives of these are long gone. And it's fitting then for this to be how God describes the state of Israel. Because at this point, you looking at a valley of dry bones, imagine, imagine if, if just this room, dry bones everywhere, dry, dusty bones. Imagine how fitting that would feel when you're thinking about your future. It's like, yeah, this does describe my future, the future of Israel at this point, a valley, a graveyard of dry, dusty bones. And I also can't imagine that when Ezekiel being brought to this valley, which had to have been disorienting in itself, brought to this valley of dry bones, he's asked by God, son of man, which is how God refers to Ezekiel often, son of man, can these bones live? I would feel like that's a trick question. Like, I don't, what do you want me to say to that? For me, for Nicole, the answer would have been, that's gonna be a hard no. Like, these bones are definitely dead and definitely dry and dusty, and so I'm going to say no. (laughs) But I appreciate, okay, that's pessimistic Nicole. I appreciate how Ezekiel knows the one in whom he knows that he is in the presence of God, right? And so I appreciate how Ezekiel knows to say, and maybe he's feeling like, well, it doesn't seem promising, but at the end of the day, God, only you know if that is possible. Only you know. It doesn't really matter what I think because only you know. And I just wonder, I think it's really hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Israel or Ezekiel. There's different things happening here. These bones, this valley of dry bones is a metaphor for Israel's spiritual condition. And so we respect that and we understand that. But I want to ask you this morning because I think it's important. What is your valley of dry bones? What is the thing that in your life, maybe now, maybe it's been in the past, that it just looked dead and hopeless and gone? Maybe it's hopes and dreams for the future, what you planned. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's just everything that you thought your life would look like and it looks nothing like that. What is your valley of dry bones? What is it in your life either now or in the past that that you're staring at and it looks dry and hopeless and dead? And if God were to ask you, hey, can these bones live? 
what would your answer be? I already told you what my answer would be. There are many times where I would say, I'm going to say no, that doesn't sound or seem very possible. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but we have an artist and an author in our congregation. Let me say a very talented author and artist in our congregation. I don't know if you know this about our friend Gabe Whitney, but Gabe Whitney is a comic book artist and author, and he has put together some incredible comic books. He has a collection of them, but there's one that you could not only see, you can go see this online, but he's got the print copy too. We have both, and it's on the Valley of Dry Bones. And I was like Googling images because I just wanted you to, to really sit with the image of, of a dry, dead, barren place, a graveyard, if you will, without getting too crazy because sometimes we have kids in here, right? You don't want to get too graphic. And all the Google images just didn't seem to do it for me. I don't know what it was. I just thought that's so cliche. And then I remembered that Gabe has this comic book and it was so fitting, And so I snagged a picture, and the picture on this screen probably won't do its justice. Ugh, the coloring is way off. Look at the TV back there. It looks a lot better. The TVs might look better. But but Gabe so perfectly, in my opinion, illustrates what, what this moment could have looked like or felt like. And so that was the fitting image for me. And so we just imagine for a moment being in a place where there's only death, there's no life to be seen or to be found. And in a moment you are asked, not only are you asked if these bones can live, which depending on on where you're at, you might say, absolutely not. Or, well, I don't know, I hope so. But at the end of the day, only you know, God. But then can you imagine being asked to prophesy to bones? Just imagine for a moment that you were instructed by God to speak a word, to proclaim a word, prepare a sermon for bones. Like I I kind of tried to imagine like what would it look like if I prepared a sermon and I'm not saying that my sermons are on the level of Ezekiel's prophecy, but I'm imagining preparing a word, proclaiming a word to not a congregation full of living, breathing bodies, but to a valley of dry bones. Is that not absurd? Is that not a crazy request? And so it's, it's crazy enough to me that God would bring Ezekiel here and ask him these bizarre questions, but then he tells him, proclaim a word of life to these bones, Ezekiel. Do it and see what happens. And so Ezekiel, as we read, he does. He proclaims a word. He prophesies to the bones. And as he is speaking these words, things begin to happen. And you really got to kick in your imagination here, like really lean into it and just imagine you're in this dark valley of dead, dry, dusty bones. And all of a sudden, as you are prophesying a word to these bones, which I just can't fathom doing, you start hearing sounds. It's a rattling sound. Maybe it starts off really faint, like really distant, but then it gets stronger and louder. And by the way, Gabe's book does a great job of getting you in the moment. The way that he writes, it just really brings you into the moment. So thanks, Gabe, for that. It got me there. But you hear this sound, and all of a sudden, these bones, I mean, what what planet is this, right? That these bones, they begin to rise, and then they begin to attach themselves to one another. And, And friends, human skeletons form before Ezekiel's very eyes. 
Like, this is what you would watch on, uh, on Halloween, right? Like, imagining the, the tendons and the flesh coming over these bones. Like, that's gory graphic stuff. And then Ezekiel is watching as these bones rise up and begin to come together. Tendons appear and flesh begins to cover these bones. And if things aren't odd and creepy enough already, now Ezekiel's in the presence of a bunch of lifeless bodies. And I'm not sure that's any better than being in the presence of dry, dusty bones. I mean, is being surrounded by lifeless bodies any better than being surrounded by dry, dusty bones? What, what good is a valley of lifeless bodies? Until God says, proclaim a word, Ezekiel. Proclaim a word to the breath that these bodies need so that they have life. Proclaim a word to the breath that these bodies need to live. Tell the breath, as we read, come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live, that they may be restored. Can you imagine? Are you, are you there? Are you picturing it? This is so bizarre to me. And yet it's so incredibly powerful. This is a powerful image of what God is doing in and among Israel. The people who have abandoned him time and time again. The people who didn't even realize maybe at times that they looked nothing like the God they claimed to follow. Time and time again, a a valley of dry, dusty bones is what they asked for. And I know I've said this to you before, But it's important to say again, always pay attention and take note when you're reading a passage and the same word or phrase is repeated multiple times. Remember, always take note because the author wants you to know something. Something important is is worth repeating, and in this case, 10 different times. And in this passage, you have the word breath, breathe, and spirit, one of those words 10 different times. Which, if it, to get even crazier, it's all the same Hebrew word, okay? So the same Hebrew word is repeated 10 times in that Hebrew word. Many of you might already know this is ruach. You got to really enunciate the ch. It's the ruach. It's the wind, the breath, the spirit of God. That word, the description online looks like this. It's, there's a lot of ways to describe these, this Hebrew word ruach, but you need to know it's the wind of God. It's the breath of God and it's the spirit of God. And I wondered this week if maybe you like me would be reminded of Genesis 2, a familiar story with a similar theme. See, in Ezekiel, you have dry, dusty bones that become lifeless bodies. And in Genesis, you have the lifeless body of Adam that was formed using the dye dust of the ground. But in both cases, you have lifeless bodies that become living, breathing beings when filled with the ruach, the spirit, the breath, the wind of God. And in Ezekiel's case, it's important for us to know that it's not just a body, it's not just a person who is receiving this life, this breath, wind of God, it is an entire army, a reminder that this is 
the entire community of Israel, that God is breathing new life into them, that he's raising them from death to life. He's giving them a new heart. He's breathing into them his spirit. And this is the crux of the passage. This is the whole point of this passage is that now Israel, even though it seems crazy, even though it feels hopeless, because God is going to replace their heart and give them new life filled with his spirit, Israel can now get up and they can go and be the people of God that they were always meant to be. Even though they've abandoned him, they've turned away from him time and time again, they looked nothing like the God they claimed to follow. God is taking what is spiritually dead. It's gone, it's in a graveyard, it's buried, and he's bringing it up and giving it new life. And so now they can go on, it's possible. They can go on carrying the fear and reverence and awe and love of God in their hearts. They can go on to share God's love with those around them and truly be the light of the world that they were always meant to be, but only if they choose to do so. God is saying through Ezekiel, if you choose to follow me, and if you choose to walk with me, this is what I will do in and through you. This is what I'm capable of. This is what I can do, but you have to choose me. And I sat with this reality this week that God would be perfectly justified. Listen, this is hard, but it's, it, I'm convinced of this truth, that God would be perfectly justified to leave Israel in this state. Hopeless, no future, no vitality, represented by the valley of dry bones. God would be justified in leaving them here. This is what they chose. This is what they wanted for themselves, ultimately. It would have been perfectly fine, in my view, for God to be God and say, this is what you wanted. This is what I told you would happen time and time again. It's maddening. It's like the ultimate parental frustration. Time and time again, I've told, I've told you the same thing over and over, and you chose not to listen, and I say those famous words, I told you so, I told you, but instead, God in his loving kindness, in his grace, in his mercy, he does something else. Instead, he says, watch this, I'm going to take what was not just a little dead, but like really, really dead and I'm going to bring it up and bring new life. I'm going to take what was dead and lifeless, what was once a graveyard, void of life, and I'm going to turn it into a place where new life is born. Have you ever imagined new life born in a graveyard? And if you will follow me, then I will do for you, Israel, what I have done in this valley. Friends, this is indeed a unique message for the people of Israel, as I've said. But there is an important message that you need to hear today. And so if you've tuned everything else out, I don't blame you, it's a lot. But if you have, hear this. You know, one of my favorite things as a Nazarene, as a, a person who is from the Wesleyan holiness tradition, one of the most beautiful things about who we are as, as a Wesleyan holiness people is that we believe that God's grace begins long before the moment of salvation. 
And that is powerful, friends. We tend to only focus on the moment of salvation. That tends to be like, oh, sweet, check, you get to count that. Yay, you, you're doing great, right? It's kind of depressing sometimes when you don't report all the salvations, okay? But we believe, and I have to remember this sometimes, that God's grace begins long before that moment of salvation, the moment that the choice is made. And guess what? God's grace doesn't end there. That's actually just the beginning of a new life, right? God's grace continues to move after this moment of of salvation, of decision, and, and God continues to do a new thing in and through us, even those of us who have been Christians for 20, 30, 40, and 50 years. God's grace continues to make us new. It makes us new, and it's making us new. Are you following? This is what we believe as Wesleyan holiness people that this beautiful work of grace begins before you are even aware of it and it continues until glorification. And I like how how Wesleyan scholar Brad E. Kell says, through continual consecration, right? Continuing to die to self, to, to let God have all of you, through continual consecration and through the practice of spiritual disciplines, i.e. season of Lent, God can replace our heart of stone and can breathe in us new life, helping us to look more like him. It never stops. As long as you sit here today and breathe, it never stops. And I know the process of consecration, of, of dying to self, of, of letting go of anything that separates you from God and separates your image from looking more like Jesus, dying to that is really difficult. And the season of Lent, which is pretty much what that entails, the season of Lent can often feel like a dry, dusty, dead valley of bones. No life to be found. All I see is sin and decay and death, and, and it's hopeless and depressing. But... On the other side of that death, of that dying to self, is renewal. On the other side of that is redemption. It's new life in Christ, which we will celebrate in its fullest in two weeks. And I know I've been going on and on. Oh my goodness, this is what happens when I let someone else preach. I just get up here and I'm like, ah, I've got so much to say. One of my, I'll say this and I'm going to invite the praise team to come, but One of my favorite preachers who preached on this message a few years ago, I love this simple reminder, and I thought about this at the beginning as I was preparing the sermon, uh, the beginning of the week, that, that it would have been odd for a Jewish person to be brought into a valley of dry, dead, dusty bones. Like, that's off limits for Jewish people, right? You were, there were 150,000 rules that kept you from this very thing. I'm exaggerating. But this would have been such an awkward thing for the Spirit of God, an awkward place for the Spirit of God to be. And then I was reminded by one of my favorite preachers who says, there is nowhere God's Spirit doesn't go. There is nowhere that God's spirit doesn't or won't go. Whether it's Babylon, exile, the valley of dry, dusty bones, which would have been off limits for God's people, there is nowhere that God's spirit won't go. But what we need to do, knowing this, if we know this, if we believe this, 
then what we need to do is call for God's spirit to come and fill us again and help us to live. That's what we have to do. Call God's spirit to come and help us to live. Breathe into these dry bones. Only you know, God, only you know if it's possible to revive us and to renew us and to redeem what I have declared is dead and long gone. And so as we close this morning, maybe that's my message for the church. That a lot of times when we gather, it doesn't feel very exciting and it feels maybe more like, I don't know, is there anything left? Is, this, is there hope here? I don't know. Maybe sometimes you just feel like that. Maybe we feel like that as, as the body. I think the challenge for us collectively is to call God's spirit to fill us, but on a more personal, individual level, I just wanna say to you, That within, even in the hardest, longest, darkest, most depressing moment of your life, whether it's a moment or a season, God is doing something good. Whether you feel completely full of hope or completely void of hope, it's dark, it's it feels overwhelming and dead, God is still doing something good. And do you know how I can say that to you with such confidence? You might think, well, that's a really bold claim, Nicole. Do you know how and why I can tell you that with such confidence? Do you know how I am so sure that God is doing something good even when you're in your darkest, most hopeless moment? Here's how I know. Breathe in. That's the breath, the wind, the spirit of God in you. And that is how I know that God never stops working for our good because that breathing in and breathing out is a reminder of God's goodness of God's living spirit. That's the breath, the wind, the spirit, the ruach of God in you. And as often as you breathe in and breathe out, we can be reminded of this truth, that God continues to work to renew and to redeem what's going on around you. And so as you hopefully intentionally breathe in and breathe out in these next moments, as you breathe in, Remember that God's spirit fills you. That God's spirit is in you and it's working to renew you, to redeem you and redeem what's broken all around you. And as you breathe out, remember that as God makes himself known to us, as God's spirit is at work in us, we are called to make him known to those around us. Friends, as long as we are breathing, the grace of God is at work, renewing us, redeeming our broken parts and making us look more like him.
I really dropped the ball today, you guys. I feel like we should be singing Great Are You, Lord, like for sure. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise for sure, right? All the earth will shout your praise. These hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Missed it. Actually, it's really interesting because I wouldn't have chosen this song for that sermon, but it feels actually very appropriate and we keep talking about Lent because that's just in the forefront of our minds right now, but the spirit of God, the gift of God that takes residence in us because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. So we're gonna sing again about that cross, but first I think it feels fitting to just read this again. Just I'm just gonna read the prophecies over us, over your dry bones, because man, you guys, I feel like dry bones. I think sometimes she's like, what are your dry bones? I'm like, right here, me. I'm the dry bones. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so we might be a room full of dry bones. You didn't think you were preaching to dry bones, but you, I think you maybe you were. <laughs> so you can stand with me. I'm just gonna read this over us this morning. It says, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. He says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. And then he said, and finally, those who say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Those who feel hopeless, this is God's response. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Amen. Let's reflect on those words and the truth of those words that were fulfilled in our lives because of the price that Jesus paid, that he came and paved the way. And he, it says that he breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now you know why he did that. Maybe previously we're like, why is he breathing on them? The Ruach, that's why they knew. Let's just receive God, just breathe on us today. Holy Spirit, just blow in this place.
Thank you for the breath, the spirit, the wind that you continue to breathe in us with every single moment. God, I just pray that you would fill us. As we leave this place, God, would you fill us with with more of that fresh wind, that fresh breath, fresh spirit of the living God. And would you help us to see ourselves as living, redeemed, renewed creations that are sent out into a broken, decaying, dry, dusty world. And would you help us to show them that there is new life available? God, would you go before us? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, as you leave this morning, I pray that you would go in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that as you breathe in, you would know that the spirit of the living God fills you and is in you. And as you breathe out, would you breathe out blessing and life upon those around you? 
Go in his power and peace. You are dismissed. Have a great day.